sister. Well, good morning, church. Uh, my apologies. I don't know how I'm going to follow that. Um, I'm not nearly as cute. My dance moves aren't as good, and I'm not as entertaining. So I apologize. Um, I think, though, Pastor Nathan should win an award. His ability to give the announcements with, like, 40 kids talking to the same... He didn't... Like, he kept on, and I would have been so lost. So, Nathan, props to you. Um, I want to say, too, if you helped at VBS this week, thank you for giving of your time and energy. I know it was a long week. Um, we served dinner at 5, and then we had two hours of VBS, so it went till 8 o'clock. If you volunteered this week, would you just put a hand up? I know you're, you guys are going to hate this, but can we just give them a hand for those that helped? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It really does make a difference, and I know they hated putting their hands up uh, because nobody volunteered for the recognition, uh, because nobody does that with 80 kids, because it's a lot of time and energy and effort, but it really does make an impact. So thanks for being willing to invest, and I know uh, Pastor Nathan and Ryan are always looking for volunteers in kids' ministry, so there's always a chance to get involved. But uh, this morning, we're going to continue in our Pillars of Faith series, and I want to begin by um, telling you a story about the car that I used to drive like eight or nine years ago. Uh, I had driven this car at this point for probably two or three years. It was a fine car, nothing spectacular, but it got good gas mileage and it was cheap. So that's what I liked. So one day I get in this car and I notice this like weird smell, right? Where your nose is kind of like, something's a little bit off. And I don't, I don't have a lot of rules about car, but cars, but one of my rules uh, since we've had kids is like no milk in the car. Um, because if you've ever spilled milk, you know, there's that like curdled, gross, rotten. I mean, it's just, it's just horrible. Uh, this smell was like that, but a little bit worse and a little bit different. And I could not for the life of me figure out what was causing the smell. And so, uh, I looked under the seats. I looked under the mats. I, I did everything I could to find this smell. I didn't find anything. So I, I pulled out all the car mats. I took them to the, uh, the car wash in that high pressure sprayer. I'm spraying off all the car mats. I let them air dry. I put some uh, baking soda in the car and it's still, y'all, I don't know how to describe the smell, but it was like, it was bad. I mean, it was like something died mixed with like curdled something. Okay. And now imagine on a 95 degree South Dakota day with 80% humidity, you know how thick the air in your car is? Like, it, it kind of made me cough when I got in my car because it was so bad. And, and so I thought, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll buy an air freshener, right? Now, here's the thing. Air freshener is such a misnomer. It doesn't actually freshen the air, right? It's not like an air purifier that's actually freshening anything. So I got this, like, fresh linen scent. You guys, it was like, it was like somebody put something dead in your laundry, right? Because there was the fresh linen, but it was like that chemical fresh linen smell. And then it was mixed with this smell of death and decay that was in my car, right? And I, I still, so I, I had looked in all the wrong places, still hadn't found the underlying cause. I tried to treat the symptoms by mas masking the smell. That didn't work. So I, I thought, well, this is just my life now. I'm the dude with the stinky car. Like this is, this is my destiny. And one day I was in the trunk. It was a hatchback. So it's all connected. And there was like a pile of clothes. And when I had searched for the smell, I had like moved the clothes and looked around and put them back. And I realized like, ooh, these clothes are like goopy. What is that? And, and I pull them apart. And two things had fallen out of our groceries the last time we went on a grocery one. One was a pound of butter. 
and the other was an onion that had fallen out and the onion had sprouted and then decayed and died. And so it was this mixture of old, spicy, like 95 degree butter mixed with a decaying onion that had just like putrefied my car right? Absolutely horrible. But the great thing is once I found the root cause and took it out of the car and disinfected everything, the, the smell went away. The problem was, was twofold, right? I looked in all the wrong places because I didn't know what the core problem was. And I tried to treat the symptoms rather than the root cause. Now, once I found the root cause and removed it, everything was different, right? The smell left. I could actually drive with the windows up and the air conditioning on and survive. It was great. Now, I tell you that to say this. I want to suggest to you that we recognize, as we look at our culture, as we look at the world, we recognize that something is broken, right? You read the newspaper, you watch the news on TV, and we hear horrific stories about tragic things that have happened. And we know and we recognize that something is fundamentally broken in the world that we live in. Not to mention the last couple years where we have seen political divides and we have seen racial tensions rising and we felt the disunity that exists in our culture and we know and we fundamentally realize that something is broken. I want to suggest to you though that culturally we have not looked at the root cause and we have tried to treat the symptoms but we failed to get at what's really broken. And I want to suggest to you church that the root cause of what is broken in our culture is sin. We, we want to look in a hundred other places without recognizing that what's wrong is the broken, sin-filled hearts of people like you and I, which raises this second question, well, what is sin? What, what are the consequences of sin? How, how do we deal with those consequences? I want, to, I want to push in to some of these questions because I think we have to stop just trying to mask the problem and we have to stop avoiding the root cause and recognize that there's something fundamentally spiritual broken in the world in which we live. So I want you to take that question, what is sin? Hold, hold it off to the side for a second because to answer that question, I want to flesh out to you what we've been trying to do in this series. In this Pillars of Faith series, part of what Pastor Steve and I have been trying to do is to help us as a community develop a robust biblical Christian worldview. Now, a worldview is a lens or perspective through which you see and interpret and make sense of the world around you. The problem is, I think, we, we, we are inundated by news and media and culture, all of these other things, and suddenly what happens is we adopt a worldview, a way of seeing and interpreting reality that is much more cultural than it is biblical. And, and that, that determines how we see and make sense of things. Uh, let, let, me, let me demonstrate this. Uh, if you would pop one of those pictures up. So you've probably seen uh, some of these before. Uh, as, as you look at this, how many people see a duck with its bill in the air? How many see a rabbit? Looking this way, ears up. Okay, flip to that next picture. How many right away your default you see a vase or a chalice? Anybody see a cup? How many people saw the two profiles looking at each other? Right? The two side views of the... Now, here's the thing. We were all looking at the same picture, but we all interpreted it very differently based on our perspective, based on the assumptions that we brought to it. That's the same way that worldview functions. It's the lens through which you see, interpret, and make sense of the world around you. And so when we've talked about the doctrine of the Trinity, when we've talked about creation, what we're trying to do is to say, listen, there is a biblical way to see and interpret and make sense of the world around us. So let me summarize a couple of those key takeaways. 
In the Pillar of Faith series, we've talked about how the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit divinely created all things with order, intentionality, and purpose, especially humanity, you and I, who were created in the image of God. Right? I, I know that that is a, a full sentence that packs a lot in there, but this is a summary of what we've talked about the last two or three weeks. And, and I want to just draw out some core things. When we talk about the reality that God is triune, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what we recognize is that we were created from, from relationship and for relationship. That fundamentally, we are relational beings designed to be in a relationship with God and relationship with others. When we talk about the reality that we're created in God's image, part of what we're affirming is that to, to exist as human persons is not just to be physical, but also spiritual. We are also spiritual beings, body, soul, and mind. When we talk about the reality that God created with purpose, design, structure, and order, what we're recognizing is that all of creation is designed and created to function according to God's plan and purpose. Right? So we're created for relationship. We're spiritual beings. Everything was designed to function according to God's plan and purpose. Now, come back to that question. What is sin? Sin is this. Sin is a disobedient rejection of relationship with God and a rejection of God's plan, purpose, and priorities for your life. So what happens with sin is it's a disobedient rejection of that relationship with God that has impact and ramifications for our relationships with one another. It's a rejection of God's plan, purpose, and priorities for your life. And it's a way of living that says, I can figure out life on my own. I can determine my plan, my priority. I can do things as I see fit. And what it is, is it's a setting aside of what God has created and designed us for. And it's an attempt to try to do life on our own. The problem is, is that there are serious consequences to sin. And so what I want to do now is I want to look at a couple other key questions. How does sin begin to take hold? And how do we deal with the consequences that sin brings? Because I'll, I'll tell you what happens in, in my role as a pastor is I often talk to people who have decided to do life independently of God's plan, purpose, and priorities, and it leads them to a place of guilt, shame, and brokenness. And often they will tell me something to the effect of, I don't know how I got here. I never intended to take it this far, and yet here I am in this place of brokenness. So I think it's important that we understand and we look at how does sin take root? How does it grow in our lives? And to do that, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2 and 3. This is right after the creation narrative as we look at how Adam and Eve gave way to sin in their life. Genesis 2, 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you'll certainly die. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, well, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you'll die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. 
She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to tend and take care of it and they had one command. God said, everything is yours. You can eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one tree that you're not to eat from. And so there's this moment where Eve is walking through the garden and the serpent engages her. And and as the serpent deceives her, she gives in to temptation and she violates the one command that God had given them. And what I want us to notice, church, is how sin takes hold in this situation. Notice that it begins with temptation. Right, the serpent describes in verse six, or or the the text describes in verse six that the fruit was good and pleasing to the eye. It was desirable for gaining wisdom, right? It, It was alluring. And you can imagine Eve as she walks by, she goes, man, that, that fruit looks good. And, and here's the thing. This is how temptation works. Right? There's this desire for something. And often what happens is we think we can set aside God's plan, purpose, and priorities, and we can meet our needs. And so temptation seems like a shortcut to what we really want. It seems and feels like a shortcut to fulfillment. But James tells us this. says each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So there's this temptation moment, this desire for something, and we're tempted to say, I can short circuit God's plan, purpose, priorities for my life, and I can find this shortcut to the thing that I want. Now, after temptation, did you notice there's a doubting and a questioning of God's truth? Notice what the serpent says in verse one. He comes to Eve and he says, did God tell you you couldn't eat any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? No, in fact, it was, God said, you can eat any tree except for one. But the serpent twists the truth of God's word and said, is that that really what God said? And then notice what he says in verse four. You're not going to die, Eve. That's naive thinking. You're not going to, well, is God going to smite you down? Eat the fruit, right? There's a doubting and a questioning of God's truth. And church, listen, I have seen this pattern emerge over and over. There's temptation. And then we begin to doubt and question God's truth. Is it really that big a deal? How to be fine? I mean, this book was written 2,000 years ago anyway. We, we've progressed since then. I'll be fine. I'll, no big deal. After there's temptation, after we begin to doubt and to question God's truth, notice the rationalization that takes place. Right? And again, the serpent tells Eve, you're not surely going to die. Look what he says in verse 5. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. Eve, don't you want to be like God? And in church, this is often what happens. There's temptation, we doubt, and we question God's truth, and then we rationalize it. And one of the biggest rationalizations I see often is that, like, I can handle the consequences. It will be no big deal. But here's the reality, is that there are significant ramifications for sin. First, there's a spiritual and relational disconnect with God. Did you notice what happens then? As God is walking through the garden, where are Adam and Eve? They're hiding. 
They are filled with guilt and shame and brokenness because they've recognized their own nakedness. And God calls out, where are you hiding? Not only is there uh, spiritual ramifications, but it impacts their work, their life, and their sense of purpose. Let me read for you Genesis chapter 3, 16 to 19. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he says, because you've listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. There's a relational disconnect now in the marriage relationship. When he tells Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, that is a broken system because Adam and Eve rebelled against God's plan and purpose. This is what they chose for themselves. And to Adam, he says, you were going to work and toil and by the sweat of your brow to scrape food from the earth. Their very sense of purpose was affected as well because they turned around and rejected God's plan, God's purpose, and priorities for their life. So church, here's two realities about sin. Sin never delivers what it promises. I mean, what did the serpent say? You want to be like God? Eat the fruit. Your eyes will be opened and you'll be just as all-knowing as God. Is that what happened? Absolutely not. Sin never delivers what it promises. All you're left with is the brokenness that results. The second reality is this, is that sin always escalates. We'd like to think that we can handle the consequences, but what happens is sin always takes you farther and always keeps you longer than you ever thought you would go. The consequences are too great for us to handle. Now, as as we look at the truth and the teaching of scripture, we find a couple of things to be true. We're told in Romans that we've all sinned. And so the reality is that the story of Adam and Eve is is every one of our stories. We have all rebelled against God's plan, God's purpose, and God's priorities for our life. Let me switch gears for you. Let, let Let me walk you through a narrative that I think this story will bring into perspective how we've rebelled against God and the cost and the consequences of sin. Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus tells the story of the lost son. He says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. As Jesus tells this parable, it illustrates the reality of our sin, of our rebellion, of our rejection of God's relationship, a rejection of God's plan, purpose, and priorities for our life. 
I want us to be drawn into the story. Imagine this with me. The younger son, uh, we don't know much about his thought process. You can imagine, maybe it's a hot day and he's out working on his father's farm. We know that his father is a man of wealth. He's got hired servants. He's got a fattened calf. We know later in the story, but you can imagine maybe the younger son is out working on the farm one day and it's hot and he's sweating. And maybe it's a moment where he stands up and he looks around and he goes, what, what am I doing here? I mean, my dad's got all this wealth and I'm out here working the farm. I'm done. And the younger son, he walks into his father and he says, dad, uh, listen, I would like my share of the estate now, please. And church, listen, when do you get your share of the estate? When your father's dead, right? In this culture. So he goes to his dad. Here's what, here's the subtext. Dad, I wish you were dead. I'm sick of living under your rules. I'm sick of living under your house. I'm tired of relationship with you. Give me the blessing and let me go. Wish you were dead. That, that is what he's telling his father. As a dad, how do you respond to that? The father in this story gives the son his share of the inheritance and he goes away to a, a far off land, we're told. And there he squanders his inheritance. Everything, his dad took years and years and years to acquire all the resources that he had. And his son, in one season of just lavish living, squanders it all. Now to add to the problem, this country where the younger son is at is hit by a severe famine. Now there's two problems. One, he has no money. And in a severe famine, the price of food goes up astronomically. Now this younger son finds himself in a place where he is lost, where he's broken. It's a far off land. So he has no relationships. He has no resources. He's all alone. And he, in his words, is literally starving to death. The younger son finds a pig farmer who hires him. And and by the way, This is a Jewish audience, right? Pork was unclean for them, let alone the idea of caring for pigs that were animals that they wouldn't even eat. The the picture here is one of shame and one of brokenness. This son who comes from wealth, who comes from a father who loves him, now finds himself knee deep in muck working with pigs. And, and not only that, he is so hungry and so just empty. He looks at the pods that the pigs were eating and it says he longed to eat them, longed. Y'all, have you ever looked at pig slop? I've never looked at pig slop and thought, eh, maybe just a taste, right? Who, no, but th- this is the, the degree to which he's fallen. He's at this place where he goes, man, even, even that looks good. In verse 17, it says, then he came to his senses. He goes, what am I doing? My father's servants, they've got food to spare. I can go home. But here's his thought process. After I told off my dad, after I said, I wish you were dead, I I don't have the status of sonship. Maybe, Maybe my dad will let me be a servant. Talk about a long walk home, right? Tail between his legs, defeated, squandered everything his father given him. I imagine him walking home, practicing his speech. Uh, hey, dad. Um, no, I can't call him. Uh, sir. Um, uh. Right? And you can just imagine the closer he gets to home, the knot in his stomach. What's his dad going to do? What's he going to say? Is he, how angry is he going to be? 
hey, Dad, you know that inheritance you gave me? Yeah, it's gone. Like, how, how do you come back from that? He walks home with his speech prepared, ready to step into this identity, no longer as a son, but maybe he can be a servant. And what we're told in verse uh, 20, so he got up and went to his father, catch this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And church, I would like to think that the reason the father sees him from a long way off is because every day this heartbroken father walked to the edge of his property and was scanning the horizon. And he's thinking, maybe today is the day that my son who wished I was dead and to, for all intents and purposes is dead to me. Maybe today is the day he comes home. And when he's still a long way off, the father sees him. And as a dad, you know, when he saw him, he goes, I would recognize that walk anywhere. And church, listen, it says that the father was filled with what? He was filled with compassion. I don't even understand that. The father has every right to be ticked. He has every right to be angry. He has every right to bring judgment down on his son. But it says that the father was filled with compassion. And not only this, it says the father ran to his son. Now, here's the thing culturally that we don't get. In that culture, for a man of his stature and of his age, it was incredibly undignified to run. He wore a long tunic. The father would have had to pick up his tunic. He would have had to gird his loins and have to run out to his son. The thing is, the father loves his son so much, he throws dignity to the side and he says, I will become a dignified to run and greet my lost child. I don't get it. Twenty-one. The son launches into a speech, dad, I'm sorry, uh, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you, 22, but there's a contrast. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring a robe, bring a ring, slaughter the fattened calf. Y'all, we about to have a party. And I'm, I, again, I'm, I'm mind blown. Like, why is the father celebrating? And he says, because this son of mine who was lost and is found, who is dead is alive. And the father is filled with compassion and filled with love. And listen, church, when he says, bring the best robe and bring the ring, the robe and the ring were family symbols of belonging. He goes, no, 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 no son of mine is coming back as a servant. You cannot earn your way back into my house. I receive you with grace. I receive you with compassion. And what the father does is offer forgiveness. And church, here's the reality. This is every one of us. This is our story. All of us were told have sinned. All of us has told God off and we have rebelled and said, we're going to do life our own way. And listen, some of us are still in that place today where we are far off from God. And maybe you feel the guilt and the shame and the brokenness because of things that you've done. Can I just tell you this morning that if you turn and come back to the father, he will not greet you with anger. He will not greet you with rejection. The father will greet you with love, grace, mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. He will not leave you all as you are, but he will transform you to be someone who once again, reflects his character and his glory. The father doesn't condone what was done, but he forgives what was done. I love how scripture says this, Ephesians 2. As for you, as for me, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live when we followed the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's what we deserved. 
Verse four, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ Jesus. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. First John four, nine and 10, let me read this for you. It says this, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Scripture is clear that the wages of sin is death, but what we're told is that the gift of God is eternal life. Why? Because when we rebelled, God ran to us in Jesus, his son who came to this earth, was born of a virgin, died on the cross, a horrific death, and was raised again three days, conquering sin, conquering death, and paying the price for our sin. receive this church is to come home, is to confess as the son does in verse 21, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. It's to repent. To repent, the Hebrew word, you've heard me say this before, is teshuva. It literally means to turn or to return. The biblical image is that of the lost son. Repentance is a story of coming home. It's a reorientation of one's life where you have been running from God. Repentance is a moment where you say, God, in your grace and through the power of the spirit, I want to return and come home and be in relationship with you. It's to confess, it's to repent, and it's to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what the Bible says he did on the cross, and that his sacrifice for you is more than sufficient. So I want you to think about that this morning. Where are you? Are you like the lost son who's run far and run fast and you're afraid to come home? My hope is that today you would recognize that the father is waiting to receive you with love, grace, compassion, mercy, and forgiveness. If you've been a believer for a long time, part of what I hope emerged for you in this uh, message this morning was just an overwhelming sense of gratitude for the grace, love, and mercy of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We're overwhelmed this morning as we look at your compassion and mercy in the story of the lost son. God, we recognize that that's been all of us at one time. Scripture's clear that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of your glory. We've all rebelled against you and rejected your plan, your purpose, and your priorities for us. God, I pray this morning, right now, if there's someone who is feeling a sense of conviction and they're saying, I want to know the hope and the peace that Jesus can bring. God, I pray that today would be a moment where they would respond, where they would come home and they would experience your love and your grace and your compassion. And God, for those who are walking with you, God, let today just be a moment of being in awe of your love and your grace and your mercy for us. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.